Hello and welcome to the Governance Forum podcast series, In the Chair. My name is Tom Ward and I manage the Governance Forum at the Institute of Public Administration. It's my pleasure to welcome you to this podcast series. The purpose of the series is to engage with highly experienced and high-profile individuals who have held or hold senior positions in public bodies and public benefit entities, including, for example, as chairperson, as chief executive or senior government official, and to explore their experiences, insights and lessons learned from a governance perspective. But equally and importantly, to explore the human side of occupying a senior position and the pressures and stresses and perhaps joys that accrue. Okay, our first guest is Frank Daly, a distinguished former civil and public servant. Frank, a native of Waterford, trained originally as a teacher, but joined the Revenue Commissioners in 1963, serving at all levels in the organisation up to his appointment as Commissioner in 1996 and as Chairman of the Revenue Commissioners in 2002. He played a pivotal role in modernising revenue as an organisation in its customer interface with technology to the fore, including the Revenue Online Service. And it's fair to say that Revenue is a highly regarded organisation and the foundations of which were built during Frank's tenure. Frank ostensibly retired in 2008, but was appointed for a period to chair the Commission on Taxation and also Public Interest Director on the board of Anglo-Irish Bank. In 2009, he was appointed Chairman of the National Asset Management Agency and held that position for 10 years until 2019. Frank, you're very welcome to the podcast and I very much appreciate you joining us today. Thanks, I'm happy to do that. I outlined, I was doing some background uh, on this before, obviously, today, Frank, and I, I was reminded of your your beginning uh, training to be a teacher uh, I guess that w- was a curious to me insofar as your journey from training to be a school teacher all the way through to, to chairman of NAMA and I guess reflecting on that what, was it a smooth career journey were there unexpected turns or junctures along the way well I, I think it was smooth enough and there were some expe- unexpected turns but I think looking back on it the point that most resonates with me is that I seem to have fallen in to various things along the way. There was no grand plan uh, that came to fruition as chairman of NAMA or even as chairman of Revenue. But I I was educated by the Christian Brothers in Dungarvan and uh, I got a great education. But there was, I suppose, one thing that generally wasn't around much at the time was career guidance. Uh, But the brothers in Dungarvan entered their Leaving Cert pupils for everything that was going for Mm -hmm. teaching, for the civil service, for the ESB. I, I, for some reason, was entered for Kildare County Council clerical officer and indeed I got first place in that (laughs) exam. But anyway, I took the teaching uh, and I was in St. Pat's in Drumcondra for about four months and then I was offered the civil service Um, and that was an immediate paying job as it were, whereas teaching was going to be another two Mm -hmm. years. Uh, So again, no, no great career guidance and indeed when I was offered the civil service, I was offered two avenues. One was as an executive officer and one was as a customs officer. And again, I had no great notion of what either was, but I had this notion that executive officer would be sitting in an office Mm. pushing paper around the place. Customs officer would be out and about. So I took that. And that was the start of my career in revenue in the customs service. I... Travelled all around the country, worked in all parts of the country, worked in, the, was, was promoted in, I think, 1976 to assistant principal, which was the junior management grade in the civil service. And I was immediately seconded to the Department of Agriculture um, for two years, because at that stage, 
Ireland had piles of intervention beef stored in coal stores all over Europe. Okay. And there was a big job to be done on paperwork. So I spent a glorious six months traveling Europe, visiting coal stores and dealing with this. But within nine months, my work was kind of done. And because it was a special purpose assignment, agriculture didn't have anything else for me to do. But they didn't want to let me back to revenue. So I was getting bored and I don't tolerate boredom (laughs) very well. So I applied for a post in revenue in Galway and they couldn't refuse me. So I went to Galway and I was district manager there on the custom side until about 1990. So I saw myself at that stage as a customs lifer, I suppose. Uh, and then I was promoted to principal officer, but I had to come back to Dublin. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought I was coming back to a kind of a customs and excise job, but I was actually, and this is maybe the first unexpected turn, I was asked to to become the user manager on a new custom system, paperless, uh, doing away with paper import and export declarations, putting it all online. It was called AEP, Automated Entry Processing. Uh, I spent two years doing that in 90 and 91. It went live in 1991. And then within another two years, 93, I had been promoted to Assistant Secretary, Assistant Secretary General. And then I was promoted three years later to Commissioner, which was Secretary General level, and then Chairman in 2002. So it was, uh, that was the journey, as it were, in terms of my full-time uh, occupation in revenue. Uh, I was chair for six years to 2008. Then I chaired the Commission on Taxation. Then I was given the, the, the charmed offering of uh, being appointed a public interest director of Anglo-Irish Bank in 2009. Along the way, I chaired a panel to assess the resources of um, 18 religious congregations following the Ryan report in 2009. Okay. One of my colleagues described that as out of the frying pan into the friars. So that was that was my journey and I haven't even come to NAMA yet. And was there, reflecting back on the time at NAMA, or at, sorry, at Revenue, maybe career highlights and one or two particular challenges uh, that you had along the way? Thinking about it now, I would say, by and large, the challenges were actually also the, the highlights. And I think that often happens when you overcome challenges, whether mm-hmm. it's work or in life or whatever. One General highlight uh, is that in any work situation, it's not over till it's over. So remember, in 1990, after 25 years, I was still at the very junior management grade Mm. in the civil Mm. service. And six years later, I was at secretary general level. Six years later, again, I was at the top as the chair. So I'm from Waterford and as a fellow county man of mine, Val Dunican, who used to describe himself as an overnight success after 40 years. (laughs) And I sometimes think... It was a little bit like that for myself. Challenges. The first one was the one I've already mentioned, the, uh, the online custom service in 1991. That was groundbreaking. There were many hitches, technical and otherwise. There was significant stakeholder opposition to that. There was a real persuasion job to be done with importers and exporters and customs agents and truck drivers and freight forwarders. Mm-hmm. And that was my first time out in the media uh, on behalf of revenue because I was 
delegated by the, the, the project manager there, a fellow called Alf Kierden, who became a great friend afterwards. He said, you go out there and explain this to the Irish public as to why we're doing this and why it's necessary. So um, I, I do recall my first outing was on Morning Ireland, um, arguing with David Hanley. The day before this, I was I knew I was going on, so I was offered media training, media okay. skills training, which was very good. And the guy who was training me gave me one crumb of comfort. He said, now, he said, there's a kind of an unwritten uh, understanding that the interviewer will, will tell you beforehand what the first question is. Okay. So you get a chance during the outbreak to compose your thoughts. So I went into the studio and David Hanley was sitting opposite me and it was a, a two-hander because I think it was Cahill McQuilla was sitting opposite the, mm, the, the, mm. the, the, the interviewee before me. So Cahill did his thing. Then the ad break came and I said to David, David, what's the first question you're going to ask me? And he looked at me as only David Henley could and said, I don't know. He said, I haven't <laughs> thought of that yet. So that was a, a, an early introduction to the, the possible pitfalls of the media. That was AEP. The other highlight challenge was the Revenue Online Service. Mm. Again, the groundbreaking IT service. That was 2003. Much the same considerations. Very great tensions leading up to going live with that in July 2003. Intensive liaison with the uh, Ross team and Revenue's IT department. And less than enthusiastic response by some tax practitioners and accountants and all of that. So again, a persuasion job. Uh, and then th- that was the challenge. Those were the kind of low bits. But the euphoria then, the high highlight was watching the the take up figures mm-hmm. day by day, week by week, because you had to get to a critical level or this wouldn't have been viable at all. And then the absolute uh, euphoria when uh, we went over the, the, the limit that we needed. And Ross has been a huge success and, and still is. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I can't, uh, obviously the most groundbreaking of all the, the uh, highlights uh, for me in revenue was the modernization or the revenue restructuring in the early 2000s. And that was basically getting rid of the different fiefdoms in revenue, taxes and customs and mm-hmm. collector generals and, and that. It enabled mobility. It, it's, it was a forerunner, I think, of the agile revenue that in the past two years, for example, has been able to pivot to actually start giving money away rather than, mm-hmm. than taking it in. Uh, and again, it's a huge job of analysis and planning and persuasion, dealing with ministers, staff, trade unions and revenue management. Low points, challenges, days when you thought this would never actually happen. Uh, it took far too long in hindsight. I remember going home to my wife uh, one evening when I was as chairman with another file of papers about restructuring to be to be read. And uh, she said to me, you know something? She said, you either want to restructure revenue or, re- or now or restructure our marriage. So it just, it just <laughs> wow, took okay. far too long. It took far too long mm. because we were too fastidious and finicky. We were doing the biggest restructuring of revenue since 1923. And we wanted every I dotted and T crossed. And that really wasn't possible. Mm-hmm. And afterwards, I discovered that some of the most enthusiastic people for dotting every I and crossing every T didn't really want the restructuring at all. But they saw this as a way of just stringing it out and yeah, eventually yeah. It, would, it would run into the sand. So okay. th- th- that's 
probably enough. I mean, I, I'm conscious I'm talking mainly about structure administration challenges, but there were others. There was the dirt inquiry, the Asbacker inquiry, yeah, the yeah. offshore inquiry. So all the business end of it. So, so just uh, just on that, with your with your wife, I mean, from from her perspective, you weren't leaving work at work. It, it was obvious no, at home. No, I wasn't. I, I mean, I was probably doing a kind of an eight to eight job at the time. Uh, but I wasn't leaving, uh, even if I left it at eight, but mm, mm. coming home and sitting watching the news and then taking out uh, the briefcase and reading two papers, that's, it's actually not good for anybody. Yeah, and it's yeah. not good for the person who's actually doing it. Uh, it's not the way to, to do business. You, can, you might do that for a short, sharp period where there is some particular crisis mm. or issue. But doing it on a long-term basis is, is not a good way to do business, in my view. Revenue itself is a commission. It's an executive board type structure from a governance point of view. Um, it's not unique in that regard. There are a number of regulatory bodies, for example, which are, are similar, three, five-person commissions. Um, but you can, can you give us a sense of, of how you approach that as commissioner, as, as chair, in terms of the division between the, the strategic, the governance piece, which ostensibly is the board role, yeah. and, and the day-to-day management and whether the approach with you and your colleagues was a bit of both or you kept yourself at the strategic governance level and allowed uh, managers to to manage the organisation on a day-to-day basis. Okay, I suppose the first thing to be said is that there's a good reason why it's a three-person board uh, because revenue is independent of ministers, of um, politicians in dealing with the tax affairs of individuals and business. Um, So I think they back in 1922 when this was being... uh, sort of thought about they balked at the idea of a single great head of revenue mm, one person sure, yeah. uh, unfettered imagine the power there and the potential for abuse so with three people who were technically the same grade all secretary general level uh, th- with the chair perhaps as a primus inter pares there, there is scope for challenge there is a, a spreading of the power as it were and there is much less likelihood that it will ever uh, be abused. It, it's interesting. Uh, revenue is a hundred years old. Uh, two weeks ago, okay. And oh. uh, in August 1922, Michael Collins, who was Minister for Finance, wrote, as it happened, the last letter he ever wrote to W. T. Cosgrave, and saying, "We shall require three first-class independent men, mind you, <laughs> men, to run the revenue." Uh, he actually was killed at Bail of Law the day after. Oh, yeah. But that, that was the genesis of the board. In my experience, the board, it, it, we always sought to achieve consensus. Uh, and personally, I never experienced a serious standoff uh, at the board among the three. The chair, I think, gives space to colleagues, encourages debate, draws conclusions. And in a way, that's not unlike the role of a chair uh, in, in any other board. You asked about the way we manage. My approach would be certainly to keep a high level focus. The job of the board is you know, by and large strategy and vision and accountability and and not not the job of the board or the chairman to get immersed in day to day business. You certainly need to know what's going on, you know, to know what's going right and what's going wrong. But you put in place reporting structures for that. Uh, so generally in revenue, the board members' responsibilities would have been split on a functional basis. Mm-hmm. Maybe you'd have somebody with the customs role, with the technology role, with the corporate tax role. Uh, it all comes together under the chair. But it's not micromanaging. And I, I would basically take a dim view of people at, uh, 
board level or CEO level who micromanage because I think there is nothing more disempowering and demotivating for senior staff, uh, skilled staff, enthusiastic staff, than removing from them the space to manage and mm, the space mm. to display their skills and their commitment to the organisation. So I'd, I'd stand back. But and they that, would know that, I was that there. true for you, People, regardless of it being a, an executive board, you know, and yeah, yeah, okay. People would know I was there. Now, the temptation on the executive board is probably to intrude a little mm. bit more. But I think that that is a mistake. There's uh, fantastic staff at senior and other levels in revenue. And if you don't let them work and do their business, they will they will switch off. Mm. That's mm. not what any chairman or any board member would like to see. Mm. Can I ask you just about it, briefly even about the experience of being a public interest director at Anglo. I know it was yeah. for a, a short period because your appointment to, yeah. to NAMA comes in 2009, but uh, I'm just curious as to how, how, how you experienced that, given the timing to 2008, 2009 was a very yeah. difficult yeah. period in, in Irish life. Well, I, I mean, I was just approached, uh, as were a number of other uh, people at the time. As you know, the, the following the financial crisis, the government decided to appoint public interest directors to the Irish banks. And it was my... You can call it good fortune or otherwise <laughs> to be appointed to Anglo. That was in December 2008. And there was a kind of a baptism of fire because, I mean, I wasn't a banker mm-hmm. and any great experience of banking. I probably had met most of the chief executives and chairs of the Irish banks actually some years earlier during the, the, the offshore accounts inquiry. Uh, so we went into Anglo in December 2008. Alan Jukes was the other public interest director and myself. And within a, a day, the chair, the then chair had resigned. Within a few weeks, the then CEO had resigned, mm. uh, as had most of the existing board members. So it was really in at the deep end. Uh, what I found with Anglo was there was a, once you got to know the staff, you realised that most of them were very, very highly skilled. But perhaps over the years, the, the priorities had gone a little bit astray and you you had I found this the situation because I chaired the audit committee there while I was in Anglo uh, I found that the in Anglo everything was about lending and getting out money and dealing with the clients uh, and if you were in that area that was the kind of sexy mm. grand end if you were in the regulatory area the compliance area the audit area uh, I'm not saying that you were ignored, but certainly that was not regarded, uh, I think, with sufficient importance. Mm. So there was a question of rebalancing that. Now, it was easy to rebalance it because as public interest directors and with the total change of board and attitude, and then the bank was nationalised in early 2009. It was kind of easy to do that. It, so it was a great learning, exciting year. Uh, I describe it as a brief but passionate flirtation with banking <laughs> because by the end of 2009 I was moving on. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, 2009 and, and we're in the midst of, you know, a god-awful economic, financial and banking crisis and your approach to, to chair this brand new agency, the National Asset Management Agency. Can you tell us how that came about and maybe what your expectations were at the outset? Um. Well, it came out of the blue totally as far as I was concerned. Um, it was coming up to Christmas 2009. It was a Sunday morning. I was on my way to 
my weekly treat of a full Irish breakfast. Uh, I got a call from the then Secretary General of the Department of Finance, uh, David Doyle, and then the Minister, Brian Lenehan, and asked me would I take on the role of Chair of NAMA. I knew little about it, uh, no more than anybody else. Uh, I was reading the papers that NAMA was coming. I was aware of it in Anglo, mostly in the context of, well, when NAMA comes, how many troublesome clients can we offload <laughs> to this new organisation? Uh, when I got to NAMA, I spent my time actually doing the opposite <laughs> to refuse them, but however. Um, so I said I'd think about it and I'd get back to them the following week and I was saying, no, 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 we need an answer by three o'clock. We're announcing it tomorrow. Um, so it spoiled my breakfast, but I said yes. And uh, that's how it started. <laughs> you asked me about expectations. Well, I do remember Brian Lenehan saying that this wouldn't be too heavy at all. Um, yeah, yeah. There'd be maybe 10 or 12 meetings a year. That was my first expectation and it never materialised. Uh, another expectation was that it wouldn't be a huge organisation, maybe 30 to 40 people. And that despite its difficult genesis, that it, it would be seen as a, as a public good and it would generally be welcomed. That was another expectation that it did eventually materialise, but actually mm -hmm. took a long time to materialise. And then finally, like any good civil servant, I suppose I had the expectation that there would be a model somewhere that we could piggyback on for NAMA. Uh, in fact, that wasn't the case. We, we ultimately, I think we created the model and others piggybacked on it later on. So those, those were initial expectations that did not really come to, to okay. fruition. Uh, I should say for full disclosure purposes for those listening that Frank and I worked together for a period at, at NAMA. Uh, Frank as chair and me as secretary to the board. It's a great privilege, Frank, to, to work alongside you during that period. Thank, thank you, Tom. Um, and great privilege to have you there, actually, as thanks well. Thanks, Emil. So it's, 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 it's a weekend morning, you're having breakfast. How does your, your wife and family feel about you taking on this this role? I mean, you are again yeah. know, ostensibly retired. Well, that, that's that's quite true. And I, I don't think they had any uh, great awareness of how, how difficult this, this mm. would be. I think they probably actually saw it as a, a sort of a, a step down. Anglo for the year I was there was actually quite onerous. We, we mm. had, I mean, uh, the whole issue of a new board, uh, nationalisation, all of that. And... Uh, that was a really difficult period and, and we were having board meetings three, four, five times a week. Uh, I remember at, uh, Christmas Eve in 2008, we had a board meeting in the morning. My wife and family were gone down to Waterford for Christmas. Uh, I was travelling down in the afternoon with the dog and uh, we had a board meeting in the morning. I was about halfway down to Dungarvan and I got a phone call from the chairman to say we had to have another one. So I pulled into a car park um, in a garden centre halfway to Waterford with the dog in the boot. <laughs> and uh, we had a board meeting and it went on and on and on such that eventually somebody tapped on the window and said, sorry, we're closing. You'll have to get out. <laughs> so we finished. I finished that board meeting down the road in a lay-by. So Anglo was very demanding. There was mm. a huge time commitment. So... I don't think that uh, Elaine saw NAMA as, she probably saw it as a potential improvement, if, okay. if, if anything, you know. Um, but it did 
re require a huge time commitment. Um, not least because in the morning when I went into Anglo and I knew nothing about banking, I didn't know very much about asset management or property management or the like. So there was a, a lot of on-the-job learning uh, on that. I, I suppose one thing that did impact me and later the, the, the family, from a very early stage, although we were the firefighters in NAMA dealing with the aftermath of the, of the, the fire, there was a huge job involved in defending the organization mm -hmm. against misunderstanding and misinformation, some of it mischievous, if not indeed malicious, most of it self-serving. It's almost as if we were being blamed for a crisis that was caused by others, and mm. indeed that had happened long before NAMA was even thought of. Uh, so uh, what did this become? It became really a full-time job again, certainly for the, the early years. Uh, something you don't expect when you have retired from a job that you were 45 years at, and when ostensibly your role as chair of the board. Uh, okay. My contract actually uh, required me to agree to full-time availability, that was wow, the phrase okay. used, but I, I hadn't understood that to mean another eight to eight or nine to five job. Okay. And were you, were you able to switch off then in, in the role? I mean, maybe, you know, from a go from perspective as chair, you walk into NAMA on day one, and as I understand it, you know, it was a few desks and chairs in a corner of, of yeah. Treasury building yeah. at the time. And, it, you know, as you say, it grows into a large organization given its mandate and its responsibilities. And it, it kind of never leaves the spotlight, you know, mm. and huge amount of public attention and public interest. No, it, it, and in fact, it was a very, very small office. There were only maybe half a dozen people there who came across from the NTMA. Uh, I didn't want an office in the building because I took the view that this would might suck me into areas yeah. that really I shouldn't be involved in. But uh, I, so I said, no, I'll do this. I'll do this from home. I'll come in for meetings. Mm -hmm. uh, that that didn't last. Uh, I ended up, unfortunately, well, not unfortunately, but I ended up with an office in there. I also had underestimated the political, how political NAMA was. Um, and that was probably naivety on my part, because, of course, given what it was doing, given the the, the people involved, the people it was interacting with, and the people whose livelihoods were uh, impacted by NAMA. It was always going to be political. Uh, so I had to manage that and, and learn that. But um, I suppose it was, you know, well, sure, I'll do it for six months and then it'll ease off and I'll do it for another six months and by next year it's bound to be easier than that. And it was really, it was probably 2013 or 14 before the pressure began to uh, to come off. Because mm, I know I know when I was there for about just over two years as secretary, I mean, it was 26, 28 meetings a year. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Was, yeah, 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 yeah. It wasn't the, the, the 12, the 10 or 12 you no, mentioned. No, no, it, cer it certainly wasn't. And yeah. uh, I can talk later on about the, the board if, if you want to. But I mean, for the board itself, it was a learning experience as well. You mm -hmm. know. Uh, in fact, um, uh, if you go in on, on kind of day one in NAMA, for me as chairman, uh, the, the elements that were important at that stage was getting to know the small team in NAMA. Uh, I was very fortunate in the calibre of those, particularly the chief executive, Brendan McDonough. Then I had to take a deep dive into the legislation, not just the act, but the all debates mm -hmm. to, to give a sense of, you know, expectations and background. 
uh, and a deep dive into asset and property management. <laughs> so there were all sorts of learnings like this. I had to get to know the new board. Uh, nine people, only two of whom I really know, knew, and then not very well. And then realizing it was the way in which the board was selected, I think. I didn't know who the board members were, were when I asked the chair. Well, I was asked to chair NAMA. But I did find out afterwards that uh, even though there weren't political appointees as such, the, certainly the parties in the three parties in government at the time, Fianna Fáil, the Greens and the Progressive Democrats, uh, and also indeed I think the, the other main parties, they had, they had been made aware of who was going on the board so that there was an overall level of comfort mm-hmm. in the political system about the, the, uh, about the board m- memberships. I, I think I was regarded as apolitical, mm-hmm. um, but I'm never sure. <laughs> whether I was or not. Um, I remember Brian Lenehan at some stage afterwards, um, he was making a speech somewhere and he said, we searched long and hard and we couldn't find anybody more suitable than Frank Daly to chair NAMA. And I was delighted with this compliment until my son pointed out that it was very ambiguous that maybe they had searched long and hard, but nobody else would take it. And I was <laughs> the first that would come along. So, so I don't know what he meant, but I'll take it as a compliment okay. can I ask you as, as chairman across the, your tenure at, at NAMA and yeah you, you're, you're engaging with the individual members and getting the most out of, of the individuals and the collective and, and how you found that I mean it would have been further appointments during your tenure as well but that, that challenge a chair has in terms of getting the most out of his or her colleagues and, on, and equally on, making for a good collective you mean on the board on the board yeah, yeah. Uh, well, the first thing you do is you get to know them and you get to, to try and ascertain what their skill sets are and what their broad views are. Uh, because one of the first things I had to do was, was we had, we had uh, six committees of oh. the board in, in, in NAMA, four statutory committees and two advisory committees. So you're trying to pick people from the board membership who you think would actually fit, fit that role. I think that's crucial. Uh, they're crucial choices by any chair of any board. Uh, and I was doing it a little bit on the blind because it, it was really only, I had, they had, this had to be done fairly quickly. We had to have an audit committee and a risk committee and a uh, credit committee. So it, it was done basically at that stage on the basis of a little bit of background and knowledge of the people. Did it work out? By and large, 90%, yes, but then later on, I didn't hesitate to actually change that around when it worked. Okay. We, we had a board that pretty much always gelled together. I would certainly say that within a, in the first year or two, there were different views among one or two members. But the, the board membership changed over the years. In later years, I think we had a, a board that by and large was... Uh, committed to the, the policies and the direction that NAMA was going that had a right mix of skills and background. Uh, and my attitude as chairman was, you, you uh, no more than I mentioned earlier, you, you allow space for debate, you allow space for challenge, uh, you try to get consensus. Sometimes you can't, mm-hmm. but then that's fair enough. You, you allow that. Individuals will have principled positions. But it's the at the end of the day, it's the 
the job of the chairman to sort of try and pull it all together at the end of the meeting and, and get agreement. And not sure over the, the 10 years I was there that there was any serious disagreement or anything. We weren't able to nuance in such a way that mm, we got, mm. we got a, a, good res, a good result, you know. Um, I think the board as well were very conscious of the public image of NAMA and uh, I think the reputation of any organisation is vital, not just for public confidence in the organisation, but also for uh, for motivating staff and for the staff themselves being, mm-hmm. being being confident and happy and committed to their work. So I kind of, um, I, I suppose I, I took on a role of defending, as indeed did Brenda McDonough, of defending uh, NAMA in uh, the media, in doll committees, in with stakeholder engagement, with p- political party engagements, meetings with ministers and all of that. Uh, I, the board pretty much left me to that, but I think they were happy enough with the the outcome. Okay, it's definitely it's, it's probably one of the notable things of of your tenure at NAMA was your your profile as chair uh, alongside this, the CEO Brendan McDonough at Oroctus uh, committee meetings and launches etc was, was that a, a deliberate decision early on or was it something that kind of developed organically um, it was partly planned and it was partly organic it started with the fact that the NAMA Act uh, actually required the chairman and the CEO to appear before the PAC okay. and indeed any other Oroctus committee uh, I'm not sure how widespread that is in, in other state body legislation so that was there from the beginning. And then I think we just grew into it because it suited to have both of us representing the agency and, and to maybe spread the burden a little bit uh, to have sort of mutual support at, mm-hmm. at a public accounts committee meeting or whatever. And perhaps bringing slightly different skill sets to the work. Uh, Brendan, I mean, you will know, was an absolute master of facts. Mm, uh, I don't detail, think yeah. there was ever... I ever saw him stuck to produce information that a committee needed. I personally tended to be more comfortable with overall strategy and the like. Or maybe I was just a bit lazy. And <laughs> we leave that to others. Um, so, But there was a significant number of public briefings and meetings with stakeholders in the early years. And I tended to, I just fell into doing those because uh, they were mainly setting out the broad vision and the policies of the board. And it relieved some of the burden on the CEO had myriad day-to-day issues uh, to deal with. But, you know, I, I think we operated as a pretty good team in this area. We divided the work. We divided the burden of public appearances, but we always showed unity of purpose. And I don't think there was any dissonance uh, ever displayed between the messaging of the chairman and the CEO. Mm-hmm. But there wasn't any dissonance anyway, uh, most of the time. I guess one of the, the key tasks and challenges for a, a chairperson is their relationship with the CEO. Uh, as we talked just yeah. there on, on the, the public engagements alongside the CEO, but you know, the, the relationship can neither be too pally you know, or, yeah. and neither can it be adversarial and, and, and conflictual. Uh, how did you go about that from, from day one to the end in terms of managing that relationship and making sure it was healthy? No, I mean, it can't be pally, it can't be too pally, it can't be adversarial, but it has to be, I think, a, a respectful one. And it, it helps a lot if, if you actually get on as individuals, mm. which, which uh, indeed we did and we always have. Um, but my objective always was that there would be mutual respect. 
plenty of scope for discussion and argument. But in the end, uh, an understanding that the decisions were matters ultimately for the board. Uh, and looking back now, I can't think of any serious issue that arose and that wasn't resolved by objective discussion and analysis. I do think, by the way, that um, it's equally important that the relationships between the chairman and the CEO and individual board members, never mind a possible cabal of board members, mm. as, as sometimes happens in organisations, that, that can't be too pally either or too adversarial because th- that undermines the overall cohesion of the board and it can give rise to negative behaviours by, for example, board members who might feel left out of the loop or that they're not in a an inner circle. Mm-hmm. It didn't happen in NAMA, but I think guarding that against that is a key watch point uh, for a chairman. And I suppose the other one in we did biennial reviews of board performance, sometimes done by external agencies. And one of the key areas we always explored was this. Uh, are we getting the chair CEO relationship mm. right? Is the balance is the balance correct? OK, you, you mentioned your role as chair and the board and strategy earlier on. And, and NAMA starts out in, in I think it was October 2010 was a business plan, 10 year business plan, a deliberate plan to to uh, work out the loan book over that period. And it strikes me that around 13 or 14 NAMA pivots, you know, there's a change in, in the environment, uh, the commercial environment, uh, capital comes into the country as well. And NAMA becomes part as a recovery, which is its original mandate and part strategic investor and enabler, so office supply and residential and so on. Is, is this a fair reflection? And I mean, how, how did you experience it from your point of view? Because it was, it did seem to be you know, quite a material shift in emphasis. Yeah, no, it's, it's a fair reflection and it's a fair statement of what actually happened. I, I think we had, obviously we had a plan, we had a strategy, but I'm not a great believer in plans or strategies that are inflexible or that mm, are not mm. subject to very regular review. So it evolved basically from continuous reviews of strategy or approaches in NAMA. And in particular from, we used to have a what we called an away day every year where the board went with the senior executives. We, we just went off site. We spent the day thinking about where we were going. Uh, we spent the day, to use that phrase, scanning the horizon about what was going on. Mm. And there were things changing in the economic and the financial sector, and there was money available. And we saw a chance to actually pivot into that area. And I suppose there was two, two developments that came out of that, which both of which I would regard as actually highlights of, of NAMA. One would be our foray into building residential units that started in 2014 with a modest uh, target of, I think, about 2,000 uh, houses, 2,000 residential units, because we had this, we had come to the conclusion that it was now viable, actually, to support developers uh, in NAMA who, who could build these. Uh, the politicians, as they do, latched on very quickly to this as a great idea because housing was as it is now was mm. was a, an issue and I remember Michael Noonan so that's a great idea but sure 2,000 is far too modest you know <laughs> would you not be thinking of 20,000 or something like that which we were but we were we were going softly softly mm-hmm. let's see how we can do so we pivoted in that direction into residential and then 
I think we also pivoted quite successfully then into uh, development in the Dublin Docklands and we poured uh, a lot of money in there supporting the people, our debtors who owned most of the the docklet, the derelict sites and, mm. and the buildings and the docklands. Uh, we, within a couple of years, we had developed out 90% of uh, all the NAMA sites down there and uh, I, I can't remember how many million square feet of office space was developed there and indeed residential units as well. So it was a question really of you have a plan, you have a strategy, but circumstances change yeah. and you can do different things and you can still do what NAMA was ultimately. I mean, at the end of the day, our main objective all the time was to repay our debt. And if you can use your assets and if you can invest in such a way that it helps you get a, a return to pay that debt, then you're still you're still in, within the terms of your overall plan, but you're adapting as you go. Mm-hmm. That was, uh, I mean, ultimately it arose from discussions in NAMA and at the board and discussions I think are outcomes that were welcomed by the political system Mm -hmm. and do do you think that when when the doors finally do close on NAMA that the reflection and view of it in history will will look as it should do uh, vis-a-vis when you started out I mean when we started out it was a very negative view of it Mm. I remember in I can't remember what year but the so-called bad uh, bank and yes bad bank and as I said you know confusion uh, uh, in the general perception as to who caused the damage in the first place it wasn't wasn't NAMA we were we were tidying up uh, and then there was the a perception in in 11 12 13 that we would uh, make a huge loss I remember mm-hmm. some eminent uh, economists and con- commentators coming to the conclusion that NAMA would lose 10 billion over its lifetime by the time I left NAMA, and as it is now, NAMA is going to return a, a, a surplus of four and a half billion. So those, they were only about 14 and a half billion out <laughs> in their calculations. So I think uh, it, it, nowadays, objective commentators would say that NAMA was a success. There will always be people who will never acknowledge that NAMA was a success because they didn't like it in the first place mm-hmm. and because perhaps it impacted them personally along the way. Okay, Frank, can I ask you, maybe reflecting back across your, your stellar career uh, all the way through rev- revenue, the leading revenue uh, chairman of, of the National Asset Management Agency, I'm thinking obviously in governance terms given our, our listeners, is there two or three key learnings that you can give us and reflections in terms of what makes for well-functioning, well-performing and governed organisations? Um, I could probably give you too too much on, on <laughs> this. And, and the first thing will, it will sound quite cliched, but organisations are all about people. You don't achieve anything with plans or strategies mm. or that you achieve it with people. So uh, the people need to know what the vision is, what the plan is, what the strategies are and where they fit in. And how is the organisation doing and how are they doing within that? So I think it's ultimately the chair's responsibility uh, to create the space to develop all these strategies, but also meaning that they have to be communicated to all of the stakeholders, including internal stakeholders. And that's not just issuing a glossy plan or a list of KPIs and email or whatever. It's just this personal view but visibility and dialogue with the people working in the organisation is essential. I remember during my early years in revenue, the board was up in the rarefied atmosphere of Dublin Castle 
there was a secretariat around them, kind of like a Praetorian guard who, whose real objective was to keep people away from the, the gate- gatekeepers. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thankfully, that's no longer the, the, the position. And during my time in revenue, we started the process of the board just going out and visiting the 6,000 staff all over the country. The other thing that's important is to, for the chair and the board, but particularly the chair, to set the tone for the organisation. Organisations are great grapevines. I mean, you could go out as chair and visit an office in Letterkenny or Sligo, and within, by the time you get back to Dublin, all the organisation will know what the tone of that was. Most people in the organisations I've been lucky enough to, to serve in do a great day's work or genuinely committed. If they're unfairly dealt with, person best place to speak up for them is the head of the organisation. Mm-hmm. Um, I was asked once when the effectiveness of revenue is collecting tax was being commended. We were doing very well. Uh, and somebody said to me, Daly, you must absolutely love collecting tax. Well, I didn't actually particularly love collecting tax and I still less paying it. <laughs> but my view is if that's my job, then I'm going to do it to the very best of my ability. My father was a a country postman and uh, when he died, I was at the the funeral and there were loads of people coming up commiserating with me as as happens. And some of them came up to me and spoke to me in Irish, Janem Kovronlet and that. And that was grand. And it was only afterwards I was thinking about it where did they come from? Well, they came from the ring Gwaeltocht and Shanna Fubble Gwaeltocht outside Dungarvan because my father had been postman out there. But then I did the maths and he, had di- he was 85 when he died. So he was 20 years retired and he was 15 years before he retired, moved, promoted into Dungarvan as okay. it were. So, you know, he, 35 years since he had served out there but they still remembered him and came to his funeral. And it wasn't because he just delivered the post. It was because along the way, he'd bring somebody's pills out from Dungarvan from the Mm -hmm. chemist. He'd call into somebody who had no post due, but just to say hello. And one family where they had a, a grandfather clock and the only person allowed to wind that clock was my father. So it was... He had a sense of, uh, this was long before customer service charters or customer rights, or he had mm. a sense of what it meant to be to be in the in public service. So maybe that's well, where I got it from. I yeah, whatever, whatever you do, do it well, and exactly, it will have a, yeah, a lasting yeah. impact and legacy. But yeah. sure, it'll be very good for your own personal well-being as well, because mm. there's nothing worse than going in somewhere uh, trying to do something you don't believe in. Mm. On that note, Frank, thank you so much uh, for joining us today on, the, on our first episode of the podcast and for your time. Thanks to those listening in today. I hope you enjoyed it. For further information on the Governance Forum, you can visit www.governance.ie.